0: days. And these are days that require a lot of faith. Uh, If I could highlight one thing for you from last Sunday, it would be this. It would be, in order to have great faith, we must believe in a great God. And your faith will never rise above your view of God. Uh, Our faith is based on our view of God. If He's big enough to handle things and handle them wisely and sovereignly, and we can trust that, then we can exercise great faith in Him, not ourselves. And it was Hudson Taylor who said, not a, a great faith we need, but a faith in a great God. And Hudson Taylor was one, one who founded China Inland Mission, one of the first missionaries to China, did some amazing things. And he, he did a lot based on faith. We began to look at, last Sunday, Hebrews 11.1. 1, and that says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Evidence is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. And we, we began to look at that. That verse gives us a definition of faith. The biblical definition in a concise little sentence Not complete, but pretty good. And uh, we just saw that faith is something that has both assurance and an outward evidence working in our lives. The substance, we looked at that last week, it's the assurance of things hoped for. The things you hope for are so real that you hang on to every aspect of your life You take every aspect of your life and you hang it on that, on your hope of things that you know are true. We talked some about the Old Testament people who lived their entire lives based on future promises. Their hope had substance. They had assurance that the things that they were told and believed in were going to happen. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Word of God when it... It says things, and it says things are going to happen. It says Jesus is coming back like we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. Do you really believe that? Is it, is it settled confidence in your life? Because if it is, that's going to be your bedrock in these coming days, in the last of the last days, is the fact that Jesus said it. I believe it, and I'm trusting and placing my hope in that. So that's what faith is. Faith is a living hope that is so real it gives absolute assurance. Faith is is living in a hope that is so real it gives absolute assurance. The promises that God gave the Old Testament saints were so real to them that they based all their lives on them. They simply took God at his word. They simply took God at his word. And they lived toward the future on that basis. Do you live every aspect of your life toward the future, looking ahead on the fact that I'm moving toward that future because God said he's in control of my future, even though it looks kind of flimsy. It looks kind of unsure. It looks like things are crumbling. But we've read the end of the book, haven't we? And we know that Jesus wins. And we can rest on that. The Old Testament people were people of faith. They gave, that faith gave their present assurance and substance to what the future was in their lives. And they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like we do. They didn't have the complete word of God like we do. We are better off than the Old Testament saints. So when the writer of the Hebrews talks about assurance or confidence... It refers to an unshaken foundational confidence. Circumstances can't shake it. Opinions can't shake it. Opposition to us can't shake it. Unfulfilled expectations can't shake it. You know, unfulfilled expectations are hard on your faith. You think something should happen. It doesn't happen the way you think it should. Well, what's wrong? Did I misread God? No. No, you didn't at all. If God's in control, you might think something's going to happen, and we're going to talk about that unfulfilled expectations here in just a little bit. Time doesn't shake your assurance. Not even fear can shake your assurance in the Word of God. The second phrase in that verse is in the part of the definition is the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. It carries the same truth a little bit further because the word conviction implies a response. You have assurance. You've seen the evidence. You've got the assurance. And then conviction, it requires a response to that assurance that we have. So sometimes I just live my life and I want you to live your lives in accordance with what God says, even though I don't feel like it. How many times do you get in the morning and say, I feel like living my whole day today without giving in to the flesh, being enticed by the world. I do that. Lord, I don't want the flesh to rule today. I don't want the world to have victory today. I don't want fear to reign in my life. And that lasts, oh, about eight minutes. <laughs> and then I have to resettle again. A conviction is something that we live. And if you don't live what you say you believe, your belief is just a preference. It's not a conviction. It's a preference, not a conviction. So the person of faith lives his belief, not just voices it. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather learn about God by observing you more than what you say. You know, I, I want—I I want my life to reflect Jesus, and I think that's what it is. The person of faith lives out his belief or her belief, and it's evident to those around them. Words, words, sometimes are smoke. Sometimes they're just a smokescreen. I like the quiet, confident one that is my friend that walks with God, does not blow a bunch of smoke, and when he, what, what he says has already been affirmed by the way he lives. For the person of faith, his life is committed to what his mind and his spirit are convinced is true. He's committed to what his mind and his spirit are convinced is true. Now, I want to look at three different people this morning. Uh, Some examples in the Bible of people who had that kind of faith. People who had great faith. The first one, I'd like for us to look at great faith demonstrated in the life of Noah. Isn't the story of Noah incredible? every time I read it, I've probably, I don't know how many hundreds of times I've read the story of Noah, and it's still like you're just reading it the first time, because it, could this be real? Could could this guy have done this? It says in Hebrews eleven seven. 7, if you wanted to turn to Hebrews 11, and in verse 7, uh it says, Noah truly believed God. Let's in Hebrews eleven seven, 7, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world, and he became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, Noah believed God. Otherwise, how could he ever have embarked on such a stupendous, demanding, humanly ridiculous task like God gave him to do. But Noah believed God and he acted on his instructions. (laughs) Build an ark? Okay. What's an ark? Build a, a boat that will float? What's a boat? I should start working on that now, and it has to be, how big? And when, when is this going to happen? And God just simply said, build. And he built. That's faith. And so Noah believed God, and he acted on his instructions. It shows that he did believe him. He didn't wait until he saw the waters, of the deep open up, and things, the flood begin, and then frantically try to build a raft. He started what God asked him to do right at the very front end. And his outward building of that ark bore out his inward belief that the flood was coming and that God's plan was correct for constructing a boat that would float with all of those animals on it. Noah believed God that the ark he told him to build was sufficient to save him. We believe Christ's death and His burial and His resurrection is sufficient to save us. So that kind of puts us in the same boat with Noah, doesn't it? Being saved by the Savior. That's what Noah was doing. He's being saved by the ark, by the Savior, by the instructions He was given. So... (laughs) We believe that Christ's death and burial and resurrection is sufficient to save us. So, can we live in obedience and confidence and hope that our salvation is secure, our lives are being guided, and Christ is being honored in the way we live? So, uh, there are five things. I have to look around once in a while to make sure I'm keeping up. I'm trying to show more confidence. Hey, would you help me this morning? If if I refer to a slide or a screen and it doesn't do anything, would you raise your hand if, I, if I'm off? Because I don't want them to do what they did to the Jim to me. So. I don't eat. <laughs> so there are five things that we learn from Noah's faith that we can apply to the last days, I think from Hebrews eleven seven 7, that we just read. And it, it, Noah's response to building the ark reminds me a lot of what Joshua said in Joshua 24, 15, where he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Uh, when confronted with choosing sides, Noah, what did he do? He chose God. He sided with God. He sided with God. And that was the thing that Joshua put before the people. Did I miss that for you? Okay. Okay, so you got decided sided with God. I don't want you to miss sided. Okay. You got. This is going to be good. You're going to be like my monitor out here. I'll be able to. Anyway, so... Joshua made this proclamation to the people. He says, you choose who you're serving today. But what was Joshua's response? As for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. That reminds me so much of Noah because there are eight people in all who were saved on the ark. And all the other people were outside of that. And they chose a different way. As a matter of fact, we'll look at it in a minute. But Noah, he sided with God. He accepted what God said. Because God had said it. We're at a point in our nation right now where uh, we just can't slip in under the radar. I think as Christians, we're going to have many opportunities, many, many opportunities to identify with God, to take sides with God. And, And it's going to be sometimes hard because we'll be ridiculed We'll be made fun of. Things will happen that we don't want to happen. But in these days, we're going to have that opportunity to side with God. And it might seem that the numbers are like eight to a million. Or one to 300. But if we're on God's side, it's okay. As Noah's life bears out. He said, great faith... You see, great faith gives God his proper place in our lives. He is our final authority. He's the one we serve. Noah obeyed God when everyone else thought he was crazy as a loon. Great faith endures the ridicule of others. It endures the ridicule of others. He was mocked. He was laughed at. He was the butt of all the community jokes. Yet he stayed true to God. What are you going to do in the days when most of the community mocks you because you believe in Jesus? You can stay true. You're going to walk with him. You can trust him because he's given us the instructions and we know how it ends and we don't have to fear. He's a good God, he's a powerful God. Uh, Great faith endures to the end of the matter. Great faith endures to the end of the matter. Verse 7 says, by faith he condemned the world. How did Noah condemn the world? By completing the task that God gave him to do. That's how he condemned the world. For 120 years, he preached in faith. He hoped in faith. He built in faith. Despite the ridicule of man or the endless nature of the task, he stayed with it, unwavering. That was Noah. The fifth thing we learned from Noah is that great faith is usually in the minority. Only eight people were saved from the flood. Our American politics are kind of against us, really. Uh, And the reason I say that is because we're so we're so attuned to deciding things by the majority. And what happens when we're not the majority? What happens when we're the minority like Noah? Do we stay the course? Do we try to rally the troops so we have more on our side? Well, partially you should. You should evangelize wherever, whenever you can. You should tell people about Jesus, and he's their only hope. But if it doesn't happen, if we are not the majority, our faith should not waver. We should condemn the world by staying the course. By believing in Christ. It truly does seem like we're in the minority now. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, But don't fear. Don't fret. Stand firm. Because God is here. The natural man can't comprehend that kind of faith. We believers see him who is invisible, it says down in verse 27 of chapter 11. Uh, The unsaved man doesn't see that because he has scales on his eyes. He can't understand spiritual things until he's been born again. And when he's been born again, the scales fall off his eyes. And he sees things that he never could see or that you or I could never convince him of until that happens in his life or her life. So, And the natural man, because he, he has no spiritual senses, doesn't believe in God or the realities of God's realm. And so more and more, I, I'm, I'd like to prepare you, but more and more, you're going to be ridiculed more and more. As I read the book, things aren't getting better and better. They're getting worse and worse until Jesus comes back. So the, the natural man's really like a a blind man who refuses to believe that there's light because he's never seen light. The natural man refuses to believe God because he's never met him. When I was, when I came to know the Lord, my wife came, Kathy came to know the Lord before I did. And we used to attend this little church where Linda Cooper attended out at Peoria Community Church. And we would, Kathy and I would lay in bed, and she would argue. And I would argue. She'd argue for God, and finally she quit arguing. She just kind of let me babble on. That's intended, pun intended. <laughs> uh, the, but I would, I would argue against the existence of God. Why? Because even in my lost state, I understood that if I admitted there was a God in heaven... And I didn't serve him or submit to him. I was a bigger fool than anybody else. And so I argued and argued and I argued and I lost. On December 25th, 1974, it was Christmas morning. I got down on my knees in front of our couch and I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive my arrogance, to forgive my sin Thanked him for dying on the cross in my place. Thanked him for paying the penalty for me. thanking him for loving me when I was so unlovable. I think I probably still am, but, you know. Okay. Great faith in the life of Noah. Can you see some areas in Noah's life that could apply to us in these days? A second example that I really like is uh, if you turn to Matthew 15, there's great faith demonstrated in the life of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Beginning in verse 21, this is such a sweet story. Let's read it together. I don't know what translation you're using, but... I'm always using my favorite translation, and that's the one I read the most. You know, there's a lot of different translations, and the one you read, read it. I've seen people argue over translations, and they don't even read the one they're arguing over, and you think, what is wrong for you? Verse 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, that would be Jesus. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. In her life, I see that in order to have great faith, we must be content with little morsels from God. We must be content with the little morsels from God. You know, great faith isn't always manifested in receiving the big things. The Bible associates small things with great faith in two or three different places. And it was based on her contentment, her Contentment with little morsels. And, and uh, there are some related small things that get related to great faith. And I want us to think about those for just a minute. There's little crumbs. Little crumbs. In Matthew, we just read there, verse 27. The Canaanite woman was say, said to have great faith because of her contentment to have even the crumbs from the Master's table. The little morsels. She, she in essence, came to Jesus, and what was she saying? All I'm asking from you is a few crumbs, just a few crumbs. I don't need the whole enchilada, just a few crumbs. And in response to that, Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. There are also, in Scripture, it talks about little seeds, little seeds, keep... Uh, keep your finger in Matthew twenty-five, and I mean Matthew fifteen, and turn over to Matthew seventeen. When you run out of five fingers, that's when we'll quit looking up things. Keep your finger here, and in Matthew seventeen, talking about little seas, verse fourteen. When they when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him, Lord, have mercy on my son. You know, isn't it interesting? How as parents and grandparents were always interested in our daughters, our sons, our grandchildren. And that's biblical. We should pray for them. And I know probably everyone in this room has someone in that situation that you're related to in that way that we need to really pray for. I know we do. And um, it's a it's a hard thing. But so he came and said, Have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And uh, then Jesus makes his statement, probably directed to his disciples. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. When Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and said, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, Jesus was incredulous that his disciples couldn't heal this boy. And, And then he tells them that if you just had little faith, little faith moves mountains, let alone cast out demons little faith will move mountains. We're we're trying hard to imagine that, aren't we? Uh, In Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, back just a little bit, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted by the sea, and it would obey you. We talked a little bit last week about the mulberry tree, but the black mulberry tree has massive roots, just massive roots. And uh, it allows it to live up to 600 years. So you know what kind of root system that must have in that country. And the idea is that it doesn't take much faith in relation to God's power to see incredible things happen, like little seeds of faith can move mountains. They can uproot mulberry trees. God's power is never in question. It's always our faith. He went after the disciples. Oh, you have little faith. The common error of our day is to have great faith in our faith. You ever have someone say, man, you just got to have more faith. How do I do that? And, and, and the common error of some leaders today is you need to have more faith. You need to have more faith. And so the idea gets to be we have faith in our faith rather than faith in God. The real issue is to have little faith in God's incred- incredible power. That's the whole issue. Having faith in a great God is equivalent to great faith. And little seeds scattered regularly produce a really prolific crop. In, in Mark chapter 4 verse thirty-two, thirty 30 to 32 he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable, shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, the smaller it, it, it is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So these little acts of faith can have a huge impact in the world. A little tiny mustard seed can grow up so that Many can find shelter. Many can find a place to make nests. Birds of the air can come and rest in it from this little tiny faith. So I don't want you to think, I just got a little bit of faith and look at it as something bad. And the, the third little thing, there's, there's little crumbs and little seeds. There's also in Scripture little touches. Little touches. Turn over to the book of Mark, Got one more finger. The book of Mark and chapter five and verse 25. A woman, there was a large crowd following Jesus. You know, you can, you've seen it in the movies. You kind of envision how chaotic and hectic it is. Crowds bustling around and everything going on. And it gives me class to watch it. It really does. I, I'm not a crowd sort of person, but my Jesus was. It says when he saw the multitudes, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. But anyway, in verse 25, it says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years And the response from the disciples says, You see the people crowding against you, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? Verse 32, But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it, and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth, like he didn't know it already. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed. Be freed from your suffering it was the little touch of jesus's garment that demonstrated her great faith in verse 28 she says she just if i could just touch his garment that was a faith filled thought and it was something that set a precedent throughout the rest of jesus's ministry it before she ever touched his garment. She said, if I can touch his garment, I'll be healed. And in fact, those, after this, almost everyone who wanted to be healed came to the point where they said, all we want to do is just touch his garment. And they were healed. It, uh, It became a very common way for those in need of healing to express their desire of Jesus, that he would heal them. In Matthew uh, 14, 34, when they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick, what? Just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. You ever wonder what your little touch of faith might set in motion to others around you? This woman's touch of faith became talked about, and the sick came and just wanted to touch his garment. How amazing is that? You see, it's the little touches we have of the Savior and from the Savior that cause us to walk in faith. But I need to let you know that these little touches... These times we reach out to have contact with Jesus can't just be casual, incidental contact. Oh, sorry, Jesus brushed against you. Uh, if we hope to have great faith, they must be intentional touches. That Greek word in, uh, in Mark 5 there, in verse 30, for, the word for touch, it refers to the, an intentional faith-filled contact by this woman not just the brush of a garment as they pass by him in a crowd. As I try to put that in context in my own life, sometimes I, maybe you do this too, oh, Jesus, I just want to be close to you. Okay, but why do you want to be close to me? Well, I got a lot going on in my life and I just want to feel like you're right here. And maybe if you're close to me, when things come up, I could reach out. But I think Jesus says, look, I want you to be close to me, but have an idea of what you want while you're close to me. Don't just be pie in the sky by and by. Oh, I love being near Jesus. I do. Please don't get me wrong. have some ideas of touching him and reaching out to him and Lord I want to be close enough to touch you because this is a major major thing in my life my daughter is sick my grandson is going to heart surgery open heart surgery and it scares me to death God I can you help that have something in mind and reach out and touch Because Jesus loves to reward a faith that is content with the little crumbs and the little seeds and the little touches of his garment. It seems to me that the more content we are with the small things, the more open he is with his praise and reward. We may never know how much he uses our little private acts of faith to benefit those around us or to benefit his kingdom. But great faith does what it can in the little things. I came across a great story taken from the book The Fall of the Fortresses uh, by Elmer Bettinger. And and he wrote uh, about the B-17s in World War II. Um, They were called Flying Fortresses. And in one particular story of this B-17, the Flying Fortress, it flew a bombing mission over Germany towards the end of World War II. The bomber took several direct hits from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. Uh, A few actually hit the fuel tank. And miraculously, this crippled aircraft made it all the way back without exploding or running out of fuel. After landing, of course, they inspected that plane. They repaired what was broke and they did some inspections. They found 11 unexploded 20 millimeter shells and they carefully removed those 11 from the bomber's fuel tank. They dismantled them, examined each shell, and uh, to everyone's amazement, none of those 11 shells that hit the gas of the fuel tank had any explosive material in it. And so they asked themselves, why? Why? How could it be? Why would the enemy uh, fire empty shells? Well, the mystery was solved when they opened one of the 11 shells and they found a little note in it. And it, it was a, a note found inside, and it was written in Czech, Czechoslovakian at that point. And translated, it read, this is all we can do for now. And evidently, a member of the Czech underground worked in a Nazi musicians, munitions factory, and he had deliberately... Uh, omitted the explosives in at least 11 shells. And uh, not knowing whether his sabotage efforts do doing good or not, he slipped this note in one of the shells, hoping that maybe somebody would find them and know that somebody was working for them on the inside. And I'm quite sure that Czech underground guy died wondering if... All the quiet work he'd done in that munitions factory had paid any dividends. But he pressed on. He kept doing it. Do you press on, keep doing the little things, even though no one acknowledges them? Well, that act at least saved one bomber crew so that they could go home to their families. And I think sometimes we wonder, at the acts of small faith that we do. I think sometimes we wonder if it's really worth it. Why do I do this? Why do I come over here in the church and clean toilets when nobody sees? Why do I do that? Why do I do this thing for my neighbor that they really don't know I do, but I do it all the time and they've never even said thank you? Why do I do that? What impact does that have? And uh, we might never know the full benefit of the things we're doing. But let me tell you, they will have an impact in somebody's life in some way. And we don't do it because we want to be patted on the back. We don't do it because we we want great glory. We do it because Jesus loves us and we want to show his love by doing the little things he asks us to do. That's great faith. Great faith. Great faith is persistent faith. In chapter 15, verse 23, it says she keeps crying out after us. I'm not going to say she was a nag, but she was persistent. Sometimes I found over my years of pastoral ministry, I, I had the gift of nagging to get things done. But that's not the way God does things. This woman's faith was great because she persisted in asking and trusting when everything seemed against her. Certainly her ethnic background was against her. She was a Gentile. Her gender was against her. She was a woman. Most Jewish rabbis paid little attention to a woman. And it seemed like the disciples were against her because they kept trying to push her away. And even Jesus' initial words might have led her to believe that he was against her. But rather than discourage her, all those obstacles just made her be more persistent in asking. How many times have we given up when obstacles seem to mount against us? Persistence is a key to great faith. It seems as though many times in life, God waits for things to go from bad to worse. He appears to kind of let things slip over the edge so that you and I say, there's no way for this to ever work out now. But that's often the point when the omnipotent God, the God of the promises, intervenes. And he intervenes in our helplessness and our hopelessness. And he says, oh, really? Watch this. Watch this. So many times, folks, when we get into... emergencies and the situation seems totally helpless. I'm going to tell you a secret. It's a setup. God's going to act. It's a setup. He's doing things way beyond what you think He should do to make you know He's working. He is working so much of the time when we can't see Him working. Because in your biggest impossibility... In your biggest impossibility, God is making an opportunity to do something great. If we don't grow weary and give up. He loves your impossible situations. And we should love him because he loves our impossible situations. Another lesson is that great faith obeys in spite of circumstances or the responses of others. Great faith is not easily offended or dissuaded. In Matthew 15, there, uh, in verse 24, uh, he told her, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel." And verse 26, "It's not right to take the children's bread and give it, toss it to the dogs, to the Gentiles." Uh, you know, and, and if the one you were seeking help from said something like that to you, you would go, "Ooh." but not this lady, not this lady. I love it. Weak faith would tuck its tail and run when those things were said, but not her. C.S. Lewis said that faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods or circumstances. I love that. Great faith trusts no matter what personal hurt we might experience, faith trusts. And that's big, folks, because personal offense is the biggest killer of faith I know of. If one of you in this room does something that really offends me, and I say, okay, I'm going to take my faith ball and go home, my faith has suffered. The church has suffered. The body of Christ loses some of its testimony. And Satan just wrings his hands in glee. And I love this. And all it is is we're taking personal offense at something that was done that will have nothing to do with eternity. Taking up personal offenses is one of those fiery darts that the enemy shoots that will burn us up from the inside out. The next one, great faith does not see the impossibilities that other people see when their circumstances seem overwhelming. It does not see the impossibilities that other people see when their circumstances seem overwhelming. Great faith has an optimistic spirit about it that's contagious. If you're around someone with great faith, it just kind of rubs off. Reminds me of a story I heard about a good old boy from the backwoods by the name of Jeb. The wolves were picking off the livestock of the local ranchers at an alarming rate in Jeb's area. And so the state offered a bounty of $5,000 for every wolf that was killed. So Jeb and his friend Ernie decided to go into the wolf hunting business. They, the first day they hunted wolves all day, didn't see anything, didn't see any sign. They just wore themselves out. And they made camp way up in the mountains near a beautiful little stream. About four o'clock in the morning, Jeb woke up to see their camp surrounded by thirty or forty wolves. (laughs) And in the light of that dying campfire, he could see the bloodlust in their eyes and and, and the the white of their exposed razor sharp teeth. And he could also see they were getting ready to attack. (laughs) Hey Ernie, he whispered, wake up. We're rich. That's optimism. <laughs> and Jeb and Ernie enjoyed the fruits of their hunt. You see, great faith does not see the impossibilities that others see, it sees the opportunity that the impossibilities afford to the one who's willing to trust the author of faith completely. And so remember, folks, great faith doesn't see the impossibilities. So it is crucial that we don't allow personal offense to knock us off because personal offense can knock us off with the possibilities in overwhelming circumstances. There's another issue, and I'm not going to do this just because we've got dinner here. I'm not going to go for another hour like Jim suggested. (laughs) But another great illustration of great faith is in the life of the Roman centurion, and if you turn back to Matthew eight, I could that's a whole message in this guy 's life, but matthew eight verse five we'll read it so you have it, but I just want to draw one thing from his one thing from his example here today, but it says in verse five when Jesus had entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him asking for help Lord, he said, my servant." Lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Again, on behalf of someone else. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my, my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Don't you love that? I want to just, one thing from his life is that great faith rests in the power. Contained in the word of the Lord. Do you see that? He says, what did he say to Jesus? Only say the word. Only say the word. Faith is the ability of the human spirit to open up and receive impressions from God that are born from his word. Nowhere else. Faith is rooted in the word of God. And if you're not in the Bible for yourself, you can't. You can't experience any degree of biblical faith. You need to be in the Bible every day. Every day. If it means getting up earlier than you like to get up to be in the Bible, do it. Now, I know people say, well, when I get home after work and after I eat dinner, I'll sit in my chair and I'll read my Bible. And I always ask them, how's that work out for you? Not very good for most of us. We're tired, we get full, and you know the results of that. So first thing in the morning is great. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen, Faith that's independent, not based on the word, isn't really faith at all. I like what D.L. Moody said. D.L. Moody says this, he says, I prayed for faith, and I thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. Pray? Oh, God, give me more faith. I prayed, increase our faith. Well, but faith didn't seem to come, he said. One day, I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I had, up to this time, closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study, and my faith has been growing ever since, he said. So I want to challenge you. Thank you for letting me speak here, but I want to challenge you to take up the shield of faith. Don't relegate that to something you can have or can't have. As the days get darker, read the word more. Don't fear. Fight the fight of faith. Don't forget, Jesus wins, and we're going to be with him. Let's pray. Father, you're an amazing God, a God who's never failing, a God who, uh, who loves the little touches, the little seeds, the little crumbs, or the little morsels that come from you. Our God loves. You love to dispense them. And the thing I see is, Lord, when you dispensed those, they turned into great faith. So please help these dear ones here, Lord. I don't know them. I don't know what they're facing. I don't know uh, what the big issues are in their life or what the little issues are, but I pray that you would reward them with great faith in whatever they're facing. And I'd ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.